Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Jeffrey Dahmer are voiced by an actor. Dahmer is serving 15 consecutive life sentences for the murders of 17 males. The most prolific slayer in the history of the state of Wisconsin. From 1978 to 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys. He cannibalized some of his victims, dismembered their bodies, and preyed on the vulnerable, becoming one of the most depraved serial killers in American history. But what is the real story of this most unlikely of killers? And could this ever happen again? I'm criminal psychologist Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer. Episode 2, A Serial Killer is Born. It's 3 a.m. June 1978, and we're on a highway in Ohio where a driver has just been pulled over by police for swerving out of the lane. The driver is recent high school graduate Jeffrey Dahmer, and he's nervous. The police officer's curiosity is piqued by smelly garbage bags in the back seat. What's this stuff, the officer asks. It's just garbage, Dahmer lies. Dahmer waits with bated breath. Is this it? Will he be caught? Inside the bags are the remains of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. The officer waves Dahmer on his way. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I thought I was dreaming. So I went back home, and that was the first time. Once home, he stuffs the dismembered body parts down a drainage pipe where they'd remain untouched for two and a half years. When Stephen Hicks fails to return home after the rock concert, 
His parents aren't initially too worried. He's 18 and he's known to stay out late. But after a day or so, their kind-natured young son's absence rings alarm bells. Panicked, they start calling local hospitals to see if he's been admitted. After several days of doing this with no success, the concerned family files a missing persons report with the Summit County Sheriff's Department. A detective is assigned to the case and retraces Hicks' 30-mile journey to the concert, but he turns up nothing. It's like he has simply vanished into thin air. The family put up a reward for information, but the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months. The case file remains open. I turned to E. Michael McCann, who was Milwaukee's district attorney and would go on to be the lead prosecutor during Jeffrey Dahmer's trial. I'm sure they hoped and prayed that their son, whom they had last seen in 1978, was still alive. It makes you almost cry. You know, hope springs eternal within the human breast, and I'm sure they were hoping he was still alive. As you know, he utterly disposed of the body. There was never a trace of him. They never knew what happened to him. He just disappeared off the face of the earth, your son, and to learn nothing of him for 13 years. That was one of the worst of Dahmer's savage habits. The people he killed, he completely disposed of their bodies. We had the, the pain he inflicted on people. My God, to, to, to steal your son, the savagery of the man. There's something you need to know about the word true when it comes to true crime. There are often multiple truths at play, and every single person involved in a violent crime, whether a perpetrator, victim, witness, or professional working the case, has a unique perspective on what happened. These truths do not have to negate each other. They can coexist. I want you to keep this in mind when assessing the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, because often there are no easy answers to many of the questions we are presented. One such question is the impact that Dahmer's first encounter with the police had on him. To E. Michael McCann, the impact was troubling. Do you think it emboldened him? Oh, it did, no question. And he got confident. That was his first one he got away with. Imagine getting how cool you are. Here he is, this is his first killing, apparently. He's got the dead body and he got an officer flashing a light in there. Dahmer was cool. He didn't break down and say, oh my God. Dr. Fred Berlin, who would go on to be a key witness for the defense, has a different take. He gets away with it. What do you think that did, if anything? No, I, I think that was tragic, but I, I think that, you know, given the nature of his disorder, that tragically uh, this was going to go on and, until he either could say something to someone or be apprehended and stopped. Despite the wreckage he has caused in someone else's life, Jeffrey Dahmer's life goes on. I speak with Annie Schwartz, the author of Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. He's had his first kill. He's continuing to drink heavily. What happens next? So he goes to college. That is not working because he's drinking all the time. And so he's just not cutting it. His father convinces Jeffrey that if he joins the military service in some way, that may help him. So Dahmer ends up joining the army. And he ends up as a medic, because that's what he's interested in. He ends up in Germany. We're only four years after the Vietnam War, and the U.S. has stations all over the world. 
One of the most significant in terms of the geopolitics of the Cold War is in Germany. So that's where many young recruits are sent. One such recruit is Preston Davis. Well, I come from a military background, so I, I basically felt that once I turned 17, it was my time to serve. Family tradition, so to speak. What was the Army like? At that time, they took high school dropouts because you could get your high school diploma in the service. You could join at 17, your parents had to sign. You can't just say, well, Michelle, I want to be a pilot. You have to qualify for certain jobs. So you take a test and it tells whether you're good in mechanics, science, etc. So my thing was, I wanted to be a medic and I wanted to go to Germany. That way, if I didn't like it, at least I saw something and I had a career field. And so that's, that's basically how I, I joined the military. You and Jeffrey Dahmer were stationed in Germany at the same time. Tell me your first impression of him. Well, I got to Germany in June of 1977. Jeff got to Germany in July of 79. My first impression was, he's smart. Very quiet, very introverted. Did he interact with people at all? Not like most men that age interact, Michelle, to be respectful. You know, guys that age talked about, oh, you know, I had this girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. You know, that type of stuff. But he never talked about stuff like that. When he drank, he got very obnoxious, you know, uh, boastful, racist, that type of stuff. So he was just very verbally abusive, you know, y'all ain't worth shit, y'all ain't, that type of stuff. So. so he would say that to a group of people of mixed races? He would say racial slurs? Yeah. Was he drunk when that would happen? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that must have infuriated these guys. Well, I mean, it, it's, it was a different time. I mean, you have to understand that we're talking 1977, 1979, and there was, there was race wars going on in the military. And so one of the first things that they incorporated was race relations, was part of indoctrination because you had people from Ohio, Arkansas, whatever, that never saw somebody black or white. And so, you know, racism is not instinct, it's taught. You know, there's two places that it doesn't matter what your race is, in the maternity ward and in the cemetery. And that's fact. What kind of training did you get in the Army? Well, medics, we're taught to save lives. So when you look at a CNA on the outside versus a medic on the inside, we're taught mass shootings, life-threatening injuries. So we're, we're trained to do stuff that we're not allowed to do on the outside. And it's my understanding that Jeffrey Dahmer was interested in all of the science stuff too. So I would imagine that he also sought out that particular training in the Army. Well, actually, believe it or not, <laughs> Jeff was supposed to be a military police officer. And he flunked out from drinking. Yes. And so what they should have done, they should have kicked him out. But you have to understand that Vietnam had ended three, four, five years ago, and they need soldiers. So they said, well, what do you want to do? So Jeff says, well, I guess I'll be a medic. And that's how he became a medic. 
Imagine if he had become a police officer. Imagine that. Was he talking about killing people? Did he boast about that while he was actually in the army? He got drunk and he talked about he had killed, uh, he didn't mention a name, but he had killed somebody in Ohio. And we're like, man, you ain't killed nobody. Who the heck would believe somebody that said they killed somebody prior to coming into the military? So people just kind of ignored that? Of course, right, we just think you're embellishing, you know? Can you share your experience with Jeffrey Dahmer as we've come to know him? Jeff got there in July of 79, and we were scheduled to go on a field exercise in October. And my boss said, train a new guy, and when you come back, I'll put you up for sergeant. So we're out in Belgium. And of course, he didn't have a license. So I'm doing all the driving. And the last three or four days of the exercise, our vehicle broke down. So that's how he had access to me. You have to understand that a company consists of 150 soldiers. A battalion consists of maybe 600 soldiers. You have four medics per company. So if I'm on an exercise and it's, I'm with Jeff, we got 150 soldiers that we're medically responsible for. That's a lot of people. And they're all over Belgium. And so the only way you really can communicate is via radio. Now you didn't have internet, you didn't have cell phone, you didn't have none of that. So it's all done through radio, through the vehicles. So when we broke down, we were towed to the train station. And that's where we were isolated. And that's when my assault happened. I was drugged and assaulted. You know, uh, medics, we had access to all type of uh, medications or narcotics. And so uh, something was put in my food or drink and I lost time. I mean, I, I woke up, I didn't realize what the hell happened. So at some point you're stranded after the breakdown for those few days and he attacks you. How did you come to realize that that had happened to you? I didn't realize what happened to me until 2009. And then I started having nightmares and I guess God started showing me little bits and pieces. And uh, I went through my medical records and I said, damn, I had hemorrhoids this year. Started putting it all together. But you know, I went through very, very, very bad survivor skill because I basically blamed myself because if I had only remembered but I didn't remember, you know. Preston's friend, Billy Capshaw, says he was also assaulted by Jeffrey Dahmer during his time in the Army. And when Preston tells his wife about their shared experiences, she calls Billy. She asked him, how could he not remember? And Billy says, hey, it's part of trauma. I'll go on a record for the first time. You know, um, I truly believe that my wife knowing what happened to me has affected my marriage. This is not easy. This ain't no badge of honor. It's not a badge of honor at all. Jeffrey Dahmer has been connected to a series of murders in Germany while he was serving. Could you share your thoughts on that? In November, Thanksgiving of 79, I was at a dinner 
at a soldier's house. There's like probably eight of us. And Jeff and I got in an argument and I kicked him out into a blizzard. He came back, he had blood on his hands. I believe they found a female within proximity murdered. So Billy and I surmised that Jeff murdered her. Now, we can't prove it, but that's what I believe. You know, people need to know that there's demons walking amongst us and they look just like you and I. And you could have one living right next door to you and not even know it. Preston is not alone in linking Jeffrey Dahmer to the murders in Germany, but I'm not sure it fits with the rest of the trajectory. I want some other perspectives. Dr. Fred Berlin. Well, you know, they did investigate that very carefully, and uh, so I don't think so. No evidence was found that during that hiatus, which included his time uh, in Germany, that there's no evidence at all that he committed a killing in, in that uh, time period. That's kind of the position I had taken, too. I'm, I'm a relative neophyte when it comes to Jeffrey Dahmer, but it just doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. Plus, they're investigating girls, and Dahmer doesn't kill girls. Annie Schwartz has a similar take. I have spoken to investigators that worked a number of murders that happened while Dahmer was stationed in, in Germany. One of the things that happens when you discover a serial killer is every law enforcement officer who ever worked in any place that that serial killer ever was looks at any unsolved murders and says, is this one we can put here? I don't just believe it because Dahmer said it. Dahmer says he did not. He did not kill anyone when he was stationed in Germany. But, you know, he wasn't a serial killer yet, I guess I would say. You know, he had killed, he had done this one murder. It was weighing on him, just made him drink more. Dahmer joining the military was like the last salvo, right? The last attempt to try and live a normal life. And he just, just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it and he's discharged. Eventually, unsurprisingly, it's Dahmer's drinking that ends his military career. His dependency becomes so severe that he's reportedly restricted to his room and only allowed to leave with an escort. I was discharged six months early from the service for drinking too much. Uh, I didn't want to be discharged early, but they, uh, they did. I didn't want to go home right away because uh, I didn't feel comfortable explaining to my folks why I was out six months early. So I decided that Miami, Florida would be a nice warm place to go. After a few months in Florida, Jeffrey Dahmer swallows his pride and returns home to Bath, Ohio. Unbeknownst to his father, the remains of Stephen Hicks have been hidden in the drainpipe ever since he left. Annie Schwartz. He goes into the army and comes out and comes back to the house and gets the, gets the bags. That's when he pulverizes the bones and scatters them across the property. Now, there were people that said, well, you know, he scattered the, you know, he, he scattered the remains uh, all over the, you know, the woods so that he could keep Stephen Hicks with him. I, I don't buy that because I don't think he was in that place yet, mentally. Always got to get rid of the body, it's utility. 
It's utility and not, I want to keep him close to me. I agree. So he's still drinking. He's still troubled. What happens next? So Lionel Dahmer, Dahmer's father, sends him to Milwaukee because he's, you know, he's just, he's screwed up. He's like, I don't know what to do anymore. And Jeffrey's troubled and, you know, frankly, a little dark. So we're going to, you know, ship him off to grandma in Milwaukee. And Dahmer seems to have a genuine bond with his grandmother, doesn't he? She's, she's his grandma. You're right. She loves him. I think she was the one person in his life that truly, truly loved him. And I think he truly, truly recognized that, that she did. And it seems like he loved her, too, in whatever way Dahmer can love. To Lionel Dahmer, the grandmother's house in West Allis, Wisconsin, seems like the best possible solution. And to begin with, everything seemed to be going well. Perhaps it would be a fresh start for his troubled eldest son. He took care of my mother's dog. Uh, loved that l l little dog that she had. Went to church with her. Uh, took her uh, various places. And uh, he would drive sometimes and, and she would drive other times. And they looked after each other very well. I think that that was positive. But things were about to change. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60 day money back guarantee, and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. 
Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I arrested uh, Mr. Dahmer in 1981 on a disorderly conduct charge. Uh, apparently he had been asked to leave the premises uh, because of a state of intoxication and refused to do so. One of the things we often hear said about Jeffrey Dahmer is how after the murder of Stephen Hicks, he tried to resist his urges to kill for nine years. And I believe this to be true. But it paints a far too simplistic impression of this period of his life where he regularly comes into contact with law enforcement often for very bizarre incidents. From being reprimanded for threatening to kill a female bartender while inebriated and arrested for being drunk and disorderly, to altogether more disturbing episodes. One such incident was at the Wisconsin State Fair in 1982. I speak to Dr. Fred Berlin. Jeffrey Dahmer was apprehended for exposing himself in front of children at the Wisconsin State Fair. How does that particular lewd behavior in public tally with the other aspects of his character? Because everything else we'd seen that he had done was under the cover of night in privacy. And this was a little different. Yeah, this was not part of his pattern. This was not what the criminal justice system would call part of his M.O. I think he was just extremely intoxicated on that, uh, in that instance and uh, just a, a one-time aberrant behavior. I mean, I've seen other cases over the years of people that get drunk and they, they moon the crowd or they expose themselves. So uh, that was an aberration. It was never repeated. And uh, I don't think means much more than he, you know, he was drunk at that point and did something foolish. Uh, others have done that. I don't think that was tied into the necrophilia or any other aspect of his behavior. But this is not an isolated case. On another occasion, he's arrested for masturbating in front of young boys. He tells the police that he was urinating, but later confesses the truth. In West Dallas, uh, there was some lewd and lascivious behavior in a park that I was involved with for about a year. But uh, there was there was no assault on any children or anything. It was just masturbation. It's an interesting use of the word just there. Psychologists see exposure as a form of sadism, whereby the perpetrator deliberately seeks to upset and offend the public. It's troubling that he is doing that in front of young children. He is charged with lewd behavior and is sentenced to a year's probation, a condition of which is to undergo psychological counseling. Even at this stage, alarm bells are being raised. One psychologist warns that, quote, his deviant behavior will at least continue in some form, if not be exacerbated. His defenses will probably be inadequate and he could gravitate toward further substance abuse with possible subsequent increased masochism or sadistic tendencies and behaviors. In tandem, he's unnerved his grandmother by stealing a male mannequin, which he hides in the basement. And unknown to anyone else, he has also been trawling obituaries to try to find an already dead young man, even making an unsuccessful attempt at grave robbing. All of this could be seen as a man resisting his most deadly of urges, but it shouldn't be ignored. It is a critical period in his trajectory. 
While living with his grandmother in West Allis, Jeffrey Dahmer enters the gay social scene in Milwaukee, and it is in the bathhouses that we see the first evidence that Jeffrey Dahmer's interest in submissive male bodies has not disappeared. Michael Takash is a historian of Wisconsin's LGBTQ history, and although he was much younger, he was on the social scene during the years that Jeffrey Dahmer was operating. Can you describe for us the bathhouses in Milwaukee at the time? So while I, while at my tender young age I could get into bars, I could not get into bathhouses because they did require IDs and they were pretty strict about it. And I think I would have been probably afraid of them at the time. Um, but I have part of the History Project done a lot of research on them. Milwaukee's first opened in the early 70s. It was called Club Finlandia. And it was in a residential neighborhood, which was kind of shocking. It had like a swimming pool and hot tubs and all the different things you would imagine a bathhouse to have. Um, but it was really, really popular. The bathhouse was really seen as an extension of gay identity at the time. It was really a cornerstone of living a liberated, free gay life. It's, you know, it was a community center. It was a dating center. It was a very anonymous place. So to go there was even more discreet than going to a bar, but to find a connection there was even less likely. You know, the, that was a space that was meant for kind of fleeting, transient moments, not really meant to be a place where you would find a date that you would go home with. Jeffrey Dameron was certainly known to be a patron of the club baths. But Dahmer is not using the bathhouses like everyone else. The anonymous nature of the space allows him to play out his fantasies, albeit in a limited fashion. The sexual excitement of a dead male body has never left him. Dennis Murphy would later be a lead detective on the Jeffrey Dahmer case. You'd go to the bathhouses and use Halcyon, chopped up in a glass, make a drink, and have sex with people in the bathhouses until he got caught. He overdosed one of the people that he met, and he called an ambulance, and they kicked him out of the bathhouses. So after he got kicked out, he started going to the gay bars more and uh, approaching people on the street, asking if they would pose for him for money. With the bathhouses no longer an option for Jeffrey Dahmer to find victims, he starts staying in hotels in Milwaukee while he frequents bars. On November 20th, 1987, he meets a young man named Stephen Toomey. Toomey is a short-order cook who has always had an interest in art. Dahmer invites him back to the hotel. Dr. Fred Berlin. He convinced Stephen to come uh, to, with him to the Ambassador Hotel, and that had been done in a purely consensual way. There's no evidence that Mr. Dahmer had intended to kill Stephen because the records show that Mr. Dahmer signed into the hotel for one day. Mr. Dahmer apparently was going to try to slip a, a drug called Halcyon into Stephen's drink so that Stephen would fall asleep, he would be able to have sex with him, and this would act as a kind of a surrogate activity to help him not have this desire to kill. What likely happens is that he accidentally took some of that laced drink himself. So Dahmer could have accidentally drugged himself. And then he blacks out and wakes up the next morning with bloodied hands and a dead body next to him. 
Now we know that he hadn't planned it ahead of time is because he'd signed in for one day. He then goes down and signs in for a second day because his body there and he needs some time to get rid of it. Jeffrey Dahmer gets himself a suitcase and packs Stephen Toomey's dead body into it, taking it back with him in a cab to his grandmother's house. I take the suitcase, uh, put it in the fruit cellar, and leave it there for about a week. Uh, it was November, cold. Uh, when my grandma goes to church for a couple of hours, uh, I go down and get it, take a knife, uh, deflesh the body, triple bag the flesh, uh, wrap the skeleton up in an old bedsheet, smash it up with a sledgehammer, and throw it all out with the trash on Monday morning. That was for lack of a better word, an epiphany in Mr. Dahmer's life. He had tried for years to, to fight this state, to not give in to these cravings, to, to not take another human life. And that's where his thinking began to become really disturbed, like a religious conversion in reverse. Maybe this is what I'm meant to do in life. Maybe, as some people think, there's a God who has a plan for them. There's some devil and that devil has a plan for me. Uh, he began getting ideas like if I build a temple out of the sacred remains of the people whose lives I've taken, the devil will reveal himself. He started reading about uh, uh, um, things like uh, uh, incantations and, and rituals and, and whether somehow this would be tied into to, to devil work and so on. Again, he wasn't saying the devil made me do it, but he was trying to understand. And it was just all downhill from that point on. He, he stopped fighting the urges, he, he, he gave in to them. He, he started to believe that maybe this is the way it's meant to be, and uh, eventually became, in my mind, a killing machine, uh, completely out of control. He tries to preserve Toomey's skull, but it becomes brittle, so he pulverizes that too. The next victim comes several weeks later when he lures back to his grandmother's house a 14-year-old boy named James Doxtater. Dahmer drugs and strangles the boy before destroying his body with a sledgehammer. Dahmer was experimenting. He was trying to figure out how is he going to act out on these, on these desires, right? How is he going to, to do this? And he ends up you know, looking for, for men. He brings men back to grandma's house and has sex with them and doesn't kill them. Jeffrey Dahmer did not kill everyone he had sex with. One of Dahmer's first known victims was 25-year-old Richard Guerrero, who disappeared in 1988. It's March 1988, and Jeffrey Dahmer is at the Phoenix Bar in Milwaukee when he meets 25-year-old Richard Guerrero. He offers Guerrero $50 for sex, and the pair go back to Dahmer's grandmother's house. Dahmer's use of sleeping pills has become ubiquitous. While many other aspects of his M.O. are still developing, drugging his victims is now a hallmark of this killer's behavior. Guerrero falls unconscious and is murdered. He is victim number four. From then on, it was a craving, a hunger, uh, I just kept doing it, doing it, 
and doing it uh, whenever the opportunity presented itself. It was an incessant and never-ending desire to have someone. By now, Jeffrey Dahmer's activities in the basement are causing his grandmother concern. Lyle Dahmer remembers. My mother noticed also some strange uh, smells in the house. And we had no idea at the time what that was. Jeff said that he had an animal down there. I said, what were you doing with that? I I cannot remember what he said. But he he minimized the importance of it. That's, That's as much as I can remember. Annie, I don't know why, but one of the most disturbing aspects of these early murders is that he's doing it right under his grandmother's nose, in her house, in her basement. It wouldn't have occurred to his grandmother that he was, like, having sex with people in the basement. Certainly didn't occur to her that, you know, he was killing people in the basement. But she didn't love it that he was bringing men home. Eventually she was like, okay, he's bringing men home, this is not okay. Then, in April, Jeffrey Dahmer lures another man to his grandmother's basement, intending to kill him. This time, his victim is Ronald Flowers, who's in Milwaukee visiting for the night. Dahmer begins to brew him a cup of coffee laced with drugs. But the pair is disturbed by Dahmer's grandmother, who has heard voices. She calls, is that you? Dahmer replies, but makes no mention of his guest. Now that his grandmother has heard someone else in the house, Jeffrey Dahmer is forced to change his plans. There is a fight, and Dahmer sexually assaults Flowers, but somehow, Flowers, now drugged, still finds his way to the hospital. When he wakes, disoriented and hurt with ligature marks on his neck, he reports the crime to police, telling them that he's been attacked, sexually assaulted, drugged, and robbed. The police go to Dahmer's grandmother's home and leave him a note. Dahmer makes an appointment to speak with the police, where he proceeds to tell the officer that the pair are simply in a relationship. And, not for the first nor the last time, the police do not pursue legitimate claims against Jeffrey Dahmer. This latest incident with one of his late-night guests makes the situation at his grandmother's house untenable. There was pressure from my grandma and dad. Uh, Word had gotten out about my late-night activities. Uh, So they thought it would be better to just move out. In the next episode, I will take a deep dive into Jeffrey Dahmer's psychology and explore precisely how a violent killer was able to hide in plain sight. Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Rebecca Redeal. Editor, Sirkin Nihat. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katia Lohm. Arrow Media's series producer is Gabrielle Nash and executive producer is Stuart Pender. Jeffrey Dahmer is played by Andrew Grun. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.